0: So hi, my name is Rachel, I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent and this is another podcast for the new book network um, Sex, Sexualities and Sex Work channel and today I'm really excited to speak to Stefan Vogler, if I got that right, um, about his book Sorting Sexualities. So Stefan, can you tell the readers who you are? And what your research interests are, please.
1: Sure, yeah. So, as Rachel said, my name is Stefan, and uh, right now I'm a research scientist at NORC at the University of Chicago. Uh, Before that, I did a couple postdocs, like a lot of us do, and um, before that, I got my PhD at Northwestern in sociology, and so... My research is really concerned with, uh, well, surprise sexuality, um, but really around the ways that, uh, sexuality is, is regulated and the way it intersects with law and science. And so, um, the way that law and science co-produce sexuality is a big theme in the book. Um, but, uh, I've studied a lot on LGBTQ asylum, looking at the ways that uh, asylum seekers can uh, come to the United States and seek protection on account of their sexualities. But as I'm sure we'll talk about, one of the things they have to do is prove that they are whatever uh, sexual identity they say they are when they come. And so um, that really got me interested in studying that arena. Uh, I've also done work on uh, sex crimes, so uh, studying how we uh, assess risk in sex offenders, how those actually become identities that the legal system uses to, to govern people. Uh, so, as you're probably gathering, I'm very uh, Foucauldian in my approach to studying sexuality, um, but, you know, I like to bring in a lot of, a lot of different uh, perspectives. So, I, I really, I always say I, I sort of follow this intersection of sociology and legal studies and science studies and, and queer studies, and so I draw on a lot of different disciplines and really think of myself as an interdisciplinary scholar in that way yeah um so yeah that's that's a little bit about myself and where i'm coming from
0: excellent so so before we really launch into the book uh why the book now why why you know what's of like why now
1: yeah well as as our readers or listeners uh surely know it takes quite a while to produce a book (laughs) so um i started writing this um oh gosh uh eight years ago seven years ago something like that um i think uh, i happened to hit on a topic that has become even more relevant over time i mean especially um as as we've seen multiple you know quote unquote immigration crises um but I really chose this topic because I didn't feel like we were paying enough attention to how uh, the state, so to speak, and I use that with some big air quotations because, uh, of course, the state is, is you know, disjointed, you know, entity, right? It's not just some unified thing, it has many arms, to use Morgan and Orloff's uh, recent book title, um, or many hands, I guess they say. Um, but uh, I didn't feel like we were looking at that too much in, in the U.S. context, especially. So we do, I think the the scholars, there have been some scholars who've done amazing work on how sexuality is, is regulated vis-a-vis the state uh, in historical context and post-colonial contexts. Um, but I didn't feel like we had much looking at the contemporary West. And so uh, so I really got interested in, in, you know, looking at this relationship between sexuality and the state. Um, and, you know, so I've always sort of been interested in how uh, to, you um, How do I put this? And and how the state essentially uses sexuality as a vector of power or regulation, Uh, and so that's a big theme in the book. And and that was really the the big thing that you know attracted me to this topic. But then the individual topics, especially asylum, right? I really started getting interested in because I was interested in the politics of immigration, uh, and and especially how sexuality uh, was involved in that um so yeah
0: yeah no that's interesting so the in the introduction you described two separate examples of de, uh the def, defining sexualities um and they're still central to the book so can you tell us what they what they are and how did they lead to you writing the book
1: yeah so uh, the two examples—I I assume you're talking about the big case studies for the book—which, <laughs> on the one hand, is LGBTQ asylum law, uh, and the other is sex offender law, specifically sex offender civil commitment law, um, which is um, uh, not specific to the United States, but um, quite a bit um, larger in the United States than it than in most other um, countries. Um, so initially I started studying asylum, um, which I actually sort of learned about by happenstance. I didn't even know. And I think some of our, our listeners won't know, right. That, that you can actually, or you might now, because it's been in the news a lot since I've started doing this research. Um, but you can get asylum, you know, political asylum, uh, based on, your sexual or gender identity. So if you're being persecuted because of your sexuality in your home country, uh, you can come to the United States or a handful of other countries, um, and you can actually seek protection based on that. You can say, hey, I'm being persecuted based on my sexuality or my gender, uh, my gender identity, and I would like to seek asylum here. Uh, and you have to go through a big legal process, but essentially, when I was a first-year graduate student, uh, I was doing some volunteer work for a nonprofit, and I learned, and I learned that they actually were representing asylum seekers. And I was like, "Oh, this is the thing." And um, okay, well, I was already interested in how the state, you know, regulate sexuality, and so this really like piqued my interest. And then I learned that one of the things you have to do in this area of law is prove that you are gay for example or prove that you are trans and i was like okay well how are people proving that they're gay to an immigration court Hmm. Uh, and that was really the driving question that started all of this is like how are people proving their sexualities to the state right or to these legal uh complexes and so i really started diving into asylum law um and i studied that for a couple of years and i was like you know this is this is clearly happening in other places right this isn't just you know a phenomenon at least my hunch was you know this is happening in other places right and so i sort of went on a hunt for other realms where where you know the state or the law right uh were uh exerting this type of regulation, right, where places sort of had to, to prove their, or or people had to prove their sexualities or something like that. And, and I went through a number of things, things like don't ask, don't tell, right, in the United States, where, um, you know, where military service members had to defend themselves against claims or accusations that they would be gay, and um, a number of other sort of arenas. And I ultimately, uh, again, sort of, happened to come across the uh the uh sex offender civil commitment laws um which again was something i didn't know existed when i you know initially started thinking about this research but um as i started looking into it so what how civil commitment works just to give uh, everyone a little background is that when a sex offender uh, so, well, there are twenty-one jurisdictions in the United States. So, um, so nineteen states plus Washington D.C. plus the federal government mm-hmm. have these statutes that allow the state uh, to seek uh, the indefinite confinement of a sex offender after they have finished serving their criminal sentence. Wow. So, right, yeah, I mean, it seems very anathema to how our justice system is supposed to work, uh, right? They're essentially being tried for the same crime a second time, but the way they get around that is by putting it in the civil realm. Um, and so they get around all sorts of double jeopardy and ex post facto and, you know, all these these legal, you know, terms that that a lot of people aren't going to care about, but that are very important here, Um And so, but again, part of then what has to happen is that in this case, the state uh, has to prove that this person is whatever they claim they are. So that they are a pedophile or they are a sadist or that they are a rapist. But they do this in a way that actually turns that from a set of behaviors, right? When we think of sex crimes, we think of okay you did this thing right you committed a rape and now you're being punished for it um but actually in civil commitment they they sort of create an identity around this right so it's not just this simple like we're punishing you for a behavior Uh, we actually have forensic psychologists come in and they really give them a dsm a a, a diagnosis from the diagnostic and statistical manual uh which is sort of the the holy bible of, of psychiatric diagnoses here in the united mm-hmm. states um and and they will say like this person is a sexually violent predator or a sexually violent person and that doesn't just become uh or that isn't just you know a signifier right that is a legal identity and it becomes uh and actually the forensic psychologist that i interview see these things as sexual identities akin to how we talk about gay and straight. So there's actually a lot of psychological literature around how, um, this group of psychologists, especially that, that do these civil commitment hearings, see things like pedophilia and sadism as sexual orientations. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a long winded way of giving you how it came about (laughs) these, these cases. And, um, You know why i ended up putting them together is because they seem like really weird sort of a a really weird comparison right like we don't think of of gayness being associated with pedophilia anymore right we have a sort of knee-jerk reaction against that especially uh, those of us who are sort of you know progressives or you know sex positive folks right um and so i really wanted to sort of uh challenge that common sense and and say like you know let's let's put this common sense under a microscope and see how this division happened how this is how these are actually operating in these two legal spheres
0: so i'm really interested in what you were saying about the sort of sex criminals in in the united in some parts of the united states so you can serve your crime but then you can be further incarcerated if you're if you're ascribed this this identity which presumably yeah. makes it very easy easy to ascribe if you've just been prosecuted for an offence that, that describes you as such.
1: Yeah, so north of 90% of these civil commitment claims end up being um, upheld, right? Or they end up being convicted to use, you know, I guess they wouldn't necessarily say convicted because it's a civil... Um, a civil hearing, but, um, they end up being civilly committed. So it's a very, very high success rate for the state. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the way you summarized it is, is exactly true. Um, in these 21 jurisdictions after you've served your criminal sentence, um, the state can elect to pursue a civil commitment hearing after that. And if they are successful, Um, the sex offender will be put into uh, a psychiatric treatment facility um, for an undefined, an indefinite amount of time. And in practice, what ends up happening is it ends up becoming a life sentence for most of them uh, without the concomitant legal protections that you get in a criminal setting. Wow. Yeah. It is is a little wow. and. I mean it's it, it's not a sympathetic population so a lot of people are sort of like eh whatever but like these are these sort of skirt these edge issues right we 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 expose you know we have these exceptional forms of law for sex offenders or for terrorists right they end up encroaching over time onto you know they they will get expanded to other populations right and so I think it's important that we pay attention to these, you know, sort of edge cases, even if they aren't a sympathetic population.
0: So how many how many jurisdictions did you say this applies to?
1: So 21. It's, it's 19 states uh, plus Washington, D.C., which is not a state yet, but hopefully soon. Uh, <laughs> and then the federal government also can, can elect to pursue it if someone is charged uh, on a federal basis rather than in a state.
0: I've got a really horrible feeling that these states, are they probably southern states with a large proportion of these people that are are exposed to this type of double, double incarceration, possibly black?
1: So that is a really, so that's a good guess. And that is what I would have guessed too. But it's actually a really diverse array of states. And so the first state to actually pass it was Washington state which um, is a fairly liberal, you know, it's a blue state. Um, But what happened is there was a really high profile um, sex crime that happened from someone who, um, from an ex-convict who said, who told officials, like, if you let me out, I'm going to commit another crime. Um, And they had no choice but to let him out. His sentence was over. And so they released him and basically immediately after he was released, he um, assaulted and mutilated a small boy. Um, And it was, I mean, it was a heinous crime, right? I mean, it was horrible. Um, And the Washington legislature reacted almost like immediately within the year. The law was passed. He was civilly committed. Uh, you know, he became the first person in the country to be civilly committed under these new laws. Um, but then the laws spread from there. So uh, California has one, Texas, Florida, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, where I am here in Chicago. Um, they so so it's a really it's a wide um, array of states, both geographically and And politically, ideologically. Uh, So, I think actually, you know, a really interesting project for some intrepid sexuality scholar who wants to do this would be tracing how these laws actually came about and what was, you know, the driving force behind them. Because Mm -hmm. I think in most of these cases, it was sort of these high profile crimes really catalyzed the passage of a new set of laws. and it really they came on the heels of the sort of satanic ritual abuse um panic of the like 1980s where in the united states there was this panic around uh child abuse uh child sexual abuse um sort of what we're seeing with qAnon right now mm-hmm. um but but sort of even more mainstream than that, you know, it had a lot of coverage, uh, and so we saw a lot of these harsher um, crimes around sex and sexuality um, getting passed at this time, and these were these were one of them. Okay. I so
0: we're talking we're talking about the 1980s then which is quite interesting isn't it when you think in terms of you know the 1980s massive incarceration that increased criminalization increased uh, extension of the carceral system and this is a slightly more subtle way of going about it it's, it's very Foucauldian isn't it that kind of like yeah. incarceration of those like you know the unnecessary like that he talks about in the 18th century oh very much yeah. yeah 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 I mean Foucault is all over this book like <laughs> yeah like, biopolitics government oh,
1: very much I'm I am definitely a Foucault fan <laughs> yeah
0: Yeah, you've definitely got the t-shirt. So, (laughs) in the book, okay, you discuss state institutions, legal and scientific actors working together to co-produce sexuality as a regulating category. Can you talk us through this?
1: Yeah, yeah. So... Um, again, this is (laughs) anyone who recognizes Foucault will recognize this general sort of theoretical thrust behind that argument. Um, but I'm also drawing on the idea of co-production from, uh, from science studies. And uh, so really to sort of break it down, what I'm saying is that, um, the state, um, and specifically these legal institutions in conjunction with different forms of science come together to really uh, create these form these, these, they don't create these sexual identities wholesale. Right. But they work to naturalize distinctions along the lines of sexuality um, by sort of importing cultural currents into the state vis-a-vis these expert discourses. Um, so, to let's see, I I feel like you asked me to break it down, and then I'm like, let me be more intellectual about it. <laughs> so let's let, let me try to be like a little more straightforward about it. Um, so, I think one of the things that I'm trying to show here is that sexuality really takes on these different valences, these different realities even, depending on the institutional context. And so um, even as we sort of think of sexuality as being more and more liberated uh, in the US or in the West in general, you know, in relation to things like the legalization of gay marriage or, um, you know, the ability to serve in the military if you're, you know, and be openly gay. Um, even as we think of these things as sort of liberating sexuality, what I'm really trying to show is that these are also the flip side of these things is also that we're creating new ways of regulating sexuality, right? So, um, so we create this area of asylum law, which I'm not going to sit here and say this is bad, right? This gives, you know, this is this is um, in some ways a very positive development. It allows people who really are in danger for their lives to get needed protection. But at the same time, it only allows certain people to avail themselves, themselves of those protections, right? And it does it by creating these circumscribed identity categories. So what does it mean to be gay under asylum law? Well, for a while, it meant that you were, when this area of law was forming in the like late 80s, early 1990s, uh, what it really meant is that you sort of, quote unquote, looked gay enough, right? Or you acted gay enough. So you were an effeminate man or a butch lesbian, uh, and a judge could look at you and be like, yeah, they look gay to me. That, that sounds good. Um, but as we all know, that is not a good way of judging who is gay or who is queer in any way, right? Um, and so, so this group of, of activists and, and experts and human rights experts, um, academics, uh, they came together and they really challenged this idea that this were, there was this like common sense, um, uh, you know, we can just look at you and know that you're gay, or you can show us some pictures of you, uh, having sex with the man or, you know, if you're another man, and this still actually has happened and in, in the UK, in fact, right. The home office gets a lot of flack, uh, in the press. If, if you look at that, um, about um, you know asking really invasive questions like are you a top or a bottom and how many people have you had sex with and um, you know all sorts of really invasive questions that aren't again needed to sort of prove someone's gay or to show someone's identity um, and so this group of this sort of hybrid um, network of experts as I as I talk about in the book came together to really challenge this. And they've really moved the standards of proof away from being about these sort of bodily indicators um, and moved it more towards being about identity and a narrative of this person's sort of life, right? So you narrate this sort of, I mean, it still becomes a sort of coming out narrative. So it still can be problematic in that sense, right? It's still a sort of Western trope. but you create these sort of circumscribed ways of, uh, you know, identities of, of what it means to be gay or what it means to be a lesbian or bisexual or transgender or what have you. Um, and so, so that's really what I'm talking about when I say they create these new regulatory categories, right? right. They, they create the queer asylum seeker. And what does that mean to be a queer asylum seeker? Or they create the sexually violent predator, um, but, of course, as I argue in the book, right they they measure these things, they conceptualize sexuality very differently in these two realms, um, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, so i'll I'll leave it at that for now, but
0: um what the sense I got when I was reading this book for, for like what came into what came to me is. And it's quite an odd kind of concept, but I, I think it bears consideration, is the debate that you have about the legalization of marijuana in, in, in some parts of the state. So that kind of like the, the legalization of marijuana allows certain, certain sets of people to be taken away from the criminal justice system yeah and leaving some behind so for example you know sort of like you know the areas in the united states where it's you could buy weed now for, is you know the weed is expensive but it's legitimate <laughs> so what you do is you you scoop out the middle class white people out of the, the the grasp of the criminal justice system and still leaves the poor and largely brown people behind to the you know to be consumed yeah. by the criminal justice system and this is this strikes me as a similar pattern in as much as people that were previously defined as being you know uh, sort of like unwanted yeah and now being like sort of brought into the main body of society in some ways but uh, you know like in other ways other sort of sexualities are not just still not acceptable there's a double indemnity for being, you know, to belong to, belonging to those groups. Yeah, and so and that's what really struck me as I was reading the book. It's a kind of like there's a sort of sifting going on here. Is like there are some people in the criminal justice system that that the criminal justice system probably thinks should be in the mainstream. So this is a way yeah. of kind of like bringing people into the fold while pushing others out isn't it i'd be really yeah. i'd be really interested in the demographics of the people who um who were being sort of like uh, civilly incarcerated after after a prison sentence because it strikes me you're going to be poor aren't you you're going to come out yeah. you're going to be cut you're, you're going to be disadvantaged and you're going to be poor
1: yeah and that's so that's one thing that's really hard to get surprise we don't the, the state does not want you to super know who these people are that are committed right so um a colleague trevor hoppy um has been trying really hard to get this demographic information and i got a little bit of it that i present in the book um i believe yes it's, <laughs> um I couldn't remember. I got it right towards the tail end of writing the book, but I'm pretty, I I think I had a chance to incorporate it. (laughs) Um, And what, um, what I found, uh, we can't get, we can't get much on class, but we can, we do know, for instance, that, um, or, well, we don't know on a wide basis, but um, based on my own research, um, most of the people can't afford private counsel when they are being tried for civil commitment, which we know, of course, is is a sign of poverty of low socioeconomic status. Um, but when we get official statistics, so here in Illinois, for instance, I was able to get a racial breakdown, and it is um, unsurprisingly disproportionately black men. Um, But the the other interesting thing is that when you look at it, um, the demographics are sort of um, a little bit surprising. So when you, there are two main things that people get civilly committed for. Uh, The first is pedophilia, and the second is um, sadistic rape um, or serial rape. And so, which in Diagnostic terms is often called other specified paraphilia non-consent, which is a very sort of um, loosey-goosey definition uh, or diagnosis uh, that I spend a whole chapter talking about in the book. (laughs) Um, But um, when you look at those two categories, those who are committed for pedophilia or pedophilic disorder are about two-thirds white. And then, when you look at those who are committed for rape, they're about two thirds black, Um, and so you know what that tells me, or or what I suspect here, is that um, you know we are, um, you know this is this is especially the rape side of things, right? That is sort of reflecting the racial composition of the the criminal justice system more, you know, writ large, in a sense, right? But it it's also showing us that that black men are disproportionately punished, right? Especially for rape. Rape is being um, medicalized to um, to further punish black men mm. um, more than white men for these crimes. Um, both as, at the large level, right? Black men are disproportionately represented overall in civil commitment, but then among those who commit rape, they're they're disproportionately civilly committed. Um, and so um, what we also found, uh, so we I actually worked on a, a report with the Williams Institute with with my colleague Trevor uh, Hoppy and some others um, recently. and what we also found, is that it looks like also sexual minority men or men who have sex with men are disproportionately civilly committed as well. And so we can still see some of those knock-on effects of, of you know, this association between queerness and criminality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because men who commit sex offenses against other men, right? So... Um, you know, by definition, they are men who have sex with men. Whether they identify as gay or or queer in any way, we don't necessarily know, but we do know that their crime was against another man. Um, and 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 from what we can tell, from the very spotty data, uh, they are disproportionately represented. Um, and part of that is probably because of the type of risk assessment that they use. So there's something called the Static 99. Um, or Static 99R, which is our actuarial risk assessment tool, and basically it's ten questions, and you—it's very easy to score. It's basically a sort of checkbox, like, you know, how old are you? What was your? Who was your crime against? And one of the questions on there is, did you have a male? Excuse me, did you have a male victim? And if you say yes to that question, it increases your risk score. And so we've actually built in. Um, you know sort of weighing male victims extra or mo- as more risky into these uh, risk assessment tools and so that along I think with some other things um, really are contributing to an overrepresentation of both black men and men who have sex with men.
0: But also as well it like, leads into really interesting debates about worthy victims isn't it it's like you know if you're a male victim of like a criminal it's almost like it's almost like the crime committed against you is weighted more heavily in fact weighted heavily enough so that the perpetrator does two sentences
1: oh absolutely i mean i think that just goes back to the way that we treat sexual violence in general right Mm -hmm. which is that it's normalized against women right it's yeah. for for a woman for a man to rape a woman is sort of i mean and if we if we go back you know 50 60 years it rape was seen as a more you know quote unquote normal expression of male sexuality than homosexuality than mm-hmm. being gay right it was seen as a, um, an overly aggressive expression of male sexual desire right and so um so we were more likely at, at mid-century, the mid 20th century to categorize um, homosexuality and pedophilia together, right? As similar types of sexual disorders and then have rape sort of over here as like, yeah, that it's still heterosexual. So it's not, quite, it's not quite as bad, it's not against nature, right? Um, but also that goes to this normalization of sexual violence against women. Um, and I think that um, we do see uh, a heavier weighting of sex crimes against boys and men as being something that is much more damaging to them, right? Mm. Like it is going like if you if a if a boy is sexually molested or sexually assaulted, I think there's still this underlying fear that you have like irreparably damaged his sexuality you've either turned him gay or something like that right there is and actually my colleague Jamie Small has written about this there is more um of a of a of a fear of like damaged sexuality among boys yeah. when they're when they're assaulted and so i do think those cultural views find their way into the legal system in that way right and we yeah. do see these crimes against um boys and men as more heinous in a sense um than those against women and girls um,
0: yeah it's like the and, sense of loss is greater yeah. so so i and you know what i really i, I did really enjoy this book because I, it kind of like it felt like sort of like sort of um Foucault 2.0 yeah so, so.
1: <laughs> thank you I was hoping it wasn't just Foucault rehash like it was 2.0 but because yeah. uh,
0: what what it's sort of like what sort of I realized is that you know so sort of Foucault talks about sort of like uh, sort of like the chattering classes talking stuff into into and out of like uh, legitimate behavior and I was sort of, um, I was thinking, so this time the the, the chattering classes are actually different. The chattering classes in this case is the state and non-state actors, particularly uh-huh. experts. So can you talk about how the book discusses the state depending on non-state actors, particularly experts to classify and categorize sexualities? Can you unpack this for us?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know the expertise that i so i talk about sort of two different kinds of expertise here one that we've been talking about this forensic psychology um which really arose in response to these laws um and and i talk a lot about how um you know we had sexual psychopath laws um earlier in the 20th century um and that was sort of during the the time of institutionalization and so institutional psychiatrists, you know, in these asylums were really the sort of experts here. Um, Organized psychiatry really withdrew from that area of law in like the 1970s, 1980s. Um, And this new discipline of forensic psychology really arose almost in response to these laws. Like a whole cottage industry has arisen in response to new sex offender laws and especially the sexually violent predator laws uh the civil commitment laws um and so in that instance you know we we see this right this isn't an unusual thing for the law uh to turn to experts when they don't feel like they can answer a question on their own right so um so in the case of sex offenders it really became built into the law they actually said hey we need this specific form of evaluation and so the law really set the standards for what type of expertise was even going to be able to um to weigh in on this topic right so they really set the standards in asylum it was a little different um in asylum, we have a very a sort of different, a more hybrid form of expertise. You can't really say that it's like sociologists or anthropologists alone, um, although sociologists and anthropologists are likely to be the type of academic disciplines that do contribute to this. But we also have human rights experts. We have lawyers. We have what um, what science studies folks call lay experts, right? People that have sort of just uh, educated themselves very well in the ins and outs of gender and sexuality, sort of studies or, or, or theory, um, and they sort of use this to translate academic arguments about gender and sexuality into these legal arenas in ways that make sense to legal actors. Um, but the you know the state or or these legal complexes um, really. Th- there has to be this opening, right? There has to be some sort of opening for this expertise to sort of come into the picture. And in asylum, that ended up being, uh, you know, one, this one particular case, uh, for, uh, Fidel Taboso Alfonso, um, who was a gay Cuban man who, who came over on the Mariel boat lift and, and he lodged the first, um, gay asylum claim or the first documented one anyway. Um, and and that became the first sort of opening for this group of experts to really say like hey you're not doing this very well <laughs> let us let us come help you and um and they started advocating they really started what i call insurgent expertise they really started pushing at the doors of immigration offices and um uh and uh, asylum offices and human rights um organizations and saying hey we need to start paying attention to this we uh you know right now they're just sort of saying like oh are you like a femme dude like okay then you can be gay um and and they really sort of pushed their way into these settings um and really sort of brought in a new lens to look at this in in this in the Sex offender side of things, it was much more of the state actually saying, "Like, hey, won't you guys come in and do this for us?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." I mean, it was sort of a bid for professional jurisdiction for the forensic psychologist. So, um, so this idea of co-production is that new forms of regulation require new forms of knowledge, right? So, and and new forms of knowledge often engender new forms of regulation, and so it's sort of this you know circular process of of you know creating new ways of knowing things and also new ways of regulating things at the same time
0: do you know what I was thinking as you're saying this? That actually, what you're getting is a new class of moral, uh, like a replacement of the moral entrepreneur. So uh, yeah. and I, I was thinking about the debates around sex work in the 1860s that came across about as a consequence of like some really unpleasant legislation that the early feminists then challenged. But then instead of like sort of carrying that through, they then sort of like side, sided back with uh, the state. And turns on prostitution itself as a as a means of like su- survival, and it's really it's quite interesting because I see almost elements uh, in this conversation as well. So you have like you know sort of like uh, sort of like the experts will will sort of pull people out of that that potential cr- uh, criminology yeah uh, sort of like uh-huh. environment, but on the other hand, it will also. Push other people further into the criminal justice system. You know, it's a kind of like a push me, pull me thing. It's like, it's so yeah, interesting. I love this book. Right. So <laughs> I really, deal. I really enjoyed it. Um, you so use I hear that. Phrase, it's, it's excellent. People really should be reading it. You use a phrase: constituting sexuality as a risk object in need of state oversight allows the state to expand its reach both. Through overtly punitive and apparently benevolent means, mm-hmm. what do you mean <laughs> when you say that?
1: What do I mean when I say that? So, um, so what I'm really trying to say there is that, um, and I think I go on to say something like it, it 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 positions sexuality not only to expand control over larger domains of social life, but also deeper into individual bodies right so um so by turning sexuality into a risk object right that is a source of risk um we um the state is able to position sexo- sex I can't talk sexuality as a different thing in different realms of life so um so let me let me provide a better a good example here so like um we tend to think we would probably look at these cases and think okay well they're going to be regulated differently because um when we talk about being gay or being um a lesbian uh, or bisexual whatever um we're talking about a sexual identity right when we when we're looking at asylum law right we're looking at how someone proves an identity versus in sex offender law we often think okay they're proving a behavior right well it's not that it's not that simple it, it's 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 very slippery in reality and oftentimes identities bleed into behavior you know behaviors become identities identities are taken to imply certain behaviors um, identities are um, imputed to people that don't really fit right and so it, there's a lot of slippage here. Mm. And so um, by saying, okay, well, sexuality is is a source of risk, right but is it a risk to the community or is it a risk to the individual? And that's really the hinge for for the different sort of approaches we see here. So in the case of uh, asylum seekers right they're facing their sexuality is putting them at risk. Um, from their home community right versus sex offenders are you know perceived as putting their community at risk um and uh and really that that establishes sexuality is as almost being able to be anything right if you can be at risk because of it or at risk from it right um Oh, sorry, I didn't say that right, but you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> um, if you're at
0: risk or risky,
1: yeah, you can it, be
0: legislated.
1: Yeah. Sexuality becomes almost omnipresent. I mean, it, I would argue that it basically is omnipresent, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so um so sexuality becomes what Anne-Marie Mole, a science study scholar, calls a multiplicity, right? It sort of becomes different things in different settings. And so um So in sex offender law, it's this bodily phenomena that's measured via things like the polygraph or the penile plethysmograph, which, um, for those of you who don't know, is essentially a blood pressure cuff that's put around a man's penis, and then he's either shown porn or listens to pornographic audio vignettes or something like that, and they gauge his penile response um <laughs> and, and so i know it's almost it's 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 laughable if the consequences attached to it weren't so dire right? right like um and and so in sex offender law sexuality really becomes this bodily phenomenon that we can gauge via the bodily or by via the body and these objective you know quote unquote objective indicators like a polygraph or an actuarial risk assessment in asylum law, sexuality takes on a whole different reality, right? It's not you can't you can't use a polygraph or a penile plethysmograph on, on an asylum seeker. Um, that would be a humanitarian violation. It really, it actually that happened, that was happening in the Czech Republic back in um, uh, I want to say 2012, 2011, something like that. And the EU just went at them, right? They're like, "Oh no, we don't do that here," you know. Like, um, but it's it's this narrated um, form of of expressing your sexuality, right? And so it becomes uh, about indicators that have to be placed in a particular context to make sense. And so, what does it mean to be? gay in iran versus canada or the united states right i mean it's it's different right um and so um so sexuality actually takes on a different reality in each of these settings even though we're regulating you know quote unquote sexuality um and this is where i was saying you know well you know, some people would come back and say, "Yeah, well, it is different, though. It's we're regulating identity and asylum versus behavior and sex crime law, but it really doesn't become that when we look at it in practice, right?" Um, and so, so that's really where I'm, I'm I go with this idea of of constituting sexuality as a risk object, right? It becomes something that there's this imperative to regulate because of the risk attached to it.
0: This is the stuff of Lombroso, isn't it? This is the stuff of like, oh yeah. It's mm. like you you've got you know you, your body you know your body is inherently criminal because of your reactions. So now we need yes. to we need to regulate you. Oh that yes, there's really... definitely that
1: bio criminality aspect. Yeah, there, that
0: sure. is really scary. And also, so obviously, like obviously, anyone who's listened to me for more than a second knows that I study sex work. Don't tell the feminine or the rad femmes about this, you know, because I'm just imagining mm. where they're going to go with this. You know, I'm imagining (laughs) sex working women being like incarcerated under these laws because of the risk they present to non-sex working women. Uh huh. This is scary stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the way that scary stuff. I mean, and the way that they get, you know, these standards developed around men and male bodies get applied to other bodies and other genders is also scary right because um you know there aren't very many women civilly committed in the united states um and you know we know well we we don't know a lot about the sex offenses right they're chronically underreported um but from what we do know we know that over 90 percent of sex offenses are committed by men hmm. um and mostly against women um and girls um But, um, oh my god, I totally lost my train of thought right in the middle of talking.
0: (laughs) I was just thinking because in in the UK, so like, um, somebody who's been convicted of like uh, prostitution will be classed as a a, will be defined as a common prostitute. That's your definition, that's your identity.
1: Uh huh.
0: How scary that would be,
1: yeah, yeah, because
0: you're already marked, you
1: know, exactly,
0: you've already been given that. There's no need to prove it because the law's been used to prove that um yeah. how to so let's sort of like move on a little bit because we're, we're talking a lot <laughs> um,
1: yeah, i'm long-winded i'm sorry
0: <laughs> good. this is awesome so how does the book explore epistemic logics Logics, yeah epistemic logics i love yeah. logics. I anything
1: oh thank you um so the idea of epistemic logics is really that um Uh, different sort of um, interstitial organizational spaces have different ways of knowing things. And so I borrow both from the idea, as you can tell from uh, the term, from the idea of institutional logics, and on the other hand, from epistemic cultures, from science studies. And I I sort of take parts of both of those and and then tweak it a little bit to to get this idea of epistemic logics. And um, again so 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 what I really mean by this is that um, the way these interstitial spaces these sort of legal scientific these techno scientific or techno legal sorry domains come to know something are very specific to those um, spaces and and they're dependent on political cultural and institutional imperatives and factors right so um, so it's dependent on the sort of cultural um, frames around the people that are under scrutiny, right? So whether that's a gay person or uh, you know a queer person or a sex offender, uh, they're they're limited by political constraints. So can we really be sympathetic to sex offenders in, in our current cultural context? Not so much. Um, but on the other hand. Um, you know queer people have political clout uh you know lgbt people have political clout um and and these things took shape in particular political contexts and then finally, we have institutional constraints, right? So what do we actually need to do in these spaces? You know, well, in asylum, we need to determine who is eligible for this type of relief versus in sex offender law, we need to figure out who is a danger, right? So so they give rise to different ways of knowing things. So so if you think of, you know, one, one way that sexuality is understood in our culture is is as um sort of residing in the body right the sort of born this way argument so sort of ironically in a sense that that argument that's that's been good in some ways for gaining rights for lgbtq people um can be seen in the sex offender realm as as sort of um not helping so much because we when we say you're born this way it's in your dna it's in your brain um, that implies an unchanging essence right that's always there and we just have to discover it through probing the body or or looking at your dna or or something like that well if if that cultural frame of the sort of born this way or or you know uh, that that cultural frame around sexuality is imported into this legal you know this techno legal context of sex offender law well then we get an approach to knowing that is centered around that idea right and it becomes okay so if we're born this way um if it's an essence in in our you know being then we should look to the the body for signs of sexuality right it's Mm -hmm. it's very much the sort of um uh, you know, it, it's it's not out of line with sort of scientific racism of of the nineteenth century, um, when we said, oh well, we can look at at racialize people's bodies and, and find some sort of distinction, right? So we can look at a, a gay person and, and find a distinction, right? Of the, like, the, like, longer finger on, you know, whatever the index finger test is, right? Like, oh, if your index finger is longer than your pointer finger, no, there's the same thing. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, there's, there's all these things about, like, oh, it'll be marked on the body. Or, um, but the attempt here, right, is to say, is to find some like biological or physiological marker of sexuality, um, and so I explore basically how these different epistemic logics get built into and institutionalized within these spaces, and I show how this is both legally adjudicated, uh, you know, how the they have these legal skirmishes over what certain terms like other specified paraphilia means. Um, and, and i also show how it sort of develops on the expert side of things right how these expert clashes um happen um and so at the risk of of, of being long-winded again i'll, I'll leave it there <laughs> i know it's like no it's, um, and
0: it's really interesting because again like we were saying earlier on this is the stuff of lombrosa and butchacharya Bich- i mean this is like you know you're born that way we'll just lock you up because there's no rehabilitation but also as well it's kind of like you you use this phrase in the book it's like uh the book claims to put the book puts uh, cultural common sense about sexuality under the microscope and makes the familiar strange and it and it and it really is doing that, isn't it? It's really kind of addressing that that sort of stuff that we're taking that that we're taking for granted, but the implications that that has as well of like you know rendering someone beyond redemption or yeah. beyond rehabilitation, because this is what this is, isn't it? This is an upgrading of the of the carceral system, you know. Yeah. You're unable to change. We've put you in prison. You've come out of prison. We deem that even though you've been punished, you are unable to change. We're going to incarcerate you more. That's scary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> really scary stuff. What, what did you learn from writing the book?
1: Oh, my gosh. What did... Uh, I learned so much. I mean, um, you know, I think as anyone who's written a book or done a project of any significant length knows... The way you start the project is almost never the way you end the project. And so, um, (laughs) um, you know, I went in here looking at really just, like, how do you, how are they proving sexuality in these domains? And that does form a good portion of the book, right? Um, You know, there are two chapters really dedicated to, like, what is empirical evidence of sexuality? Um, But i saw so much more going on i saw all these politics around expertise which i wasn't necessarily like coming in to study um i saw the power that these uh, non-state actors had in really helping to define sexuality in these very different ways in these very distinct ways in these different legal domains um you know, I I learned about these you know <clears throat> landmark Supreme Court decisions that I think have been mined a lot. But as I took a closer look, I saw like all these sort of uh, you know, if you look at the footnotes, you see like these arguments that are happening around the 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 in in the, the epistemic logic I would say of that um, institution, right? Like. Uh, there, there's this skirmish that happens between the American psychiatric association and the association for the treatment of sexual abusers, um, which is the big professional organization for the people who do, uh, treatment and evaluation of sex offenders. Um, and you see them like sparring in these court decisions. Uh, and ultimately the court's side with ATSA, the associate, the sex offender treatment folks, um, and and do you see the power, right? That that these different forms of expertise have these different forms, these different ways of knowing have to really form our our legal landscape, right? Like this this is forming the way that we regulate people, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, it's in very circumscribed ways, right? So um, uh, you know, the state sets. The standards for how these things can be, you know, entered into any sort of, uh, you know, legal arena. Um, oh, sorry, my keyboard. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, where I ultimately land with the book, uh, you know, I close in my conclusion by talking about sexuality as a technology, and uh, and that definitely wasn't something I was thinking about at all when I started this book. Um, And, but, you know, I started making these connections that just, you know, became so apparent as, as I was, you know, looking at these things from all sorts of different angles. Um, and, And really, ultimately, I came to the conclusion that we really have to start reconceptualizing sexuality, not as just an identity or an ontological state, but starting to look at what can be done with and through sexuality. Um, And how sexuality becomes a tool of social organization and social control and regulation. Um, And so this goes back to that idea, again, that sexuality is, and, and I struggled with this a lot, is that sexuality is like a whole different thing in asylum law than it is in sex offender law, than it is in a psychology lab, than it is in, you know, on the ground at Pride next week, you know, like, Um, and so really we need to look at all these like multivalent ways that sexuality has, can be used to structure social life. And ultimately, uh, you know, I think it needs to be much more central to sociological analysis than, than it currently is. Um,
0: totally. totally. And it's like, it made me really aware, like, of just how, um, how powerful a tool is. Yeah. You know, how powerful a tool and how powerful a tool it is of like, you know, sort of winning over kind of influential sectors of society, at the, but at the same time victimizing less influential sectors of society. Uh-huh. That's what I really got from it. So, who did you write the book for? Who was your target audience?
1: <sighs> well, um, you know, I definitely. Wanted it to be, uh, you know, I would like sociologists to read it for my own little like academic reasons, which is that, uh, like I said, I think sexuality needs to be more central to sociological analysis than it is. But this is really a book that I think uh, queer studies scholars are, you know are going to be the people who who like the book the most. And that's, and, you know, those are my people. And, uh, you know, I wrote it certainly from, you know, that sort of theoretical, you um, um, approach that that frame is, is definitely threaded through the book and so uh you know that's that's always been my sort of home base and while i'm while i really want to reach legal studies scholars and science studies scholars and then you know sort of quote unquote mainstream sociologists um you know this is really uh my my love letter to queer studies because that's my that's my home you know?
0: yeah yeah so <laughs> it's so interesting though isn't it it's like because there's so many other links that you can see that's got they've gone on sort of previously, and I'm thinking about the way a way the way that women who have transgressed uh, sexual sort of like uh, norms, I'm, I'm thinking about Ireland, I'm thinking about you know the women in this sort of like Magdalena homes and stuff like that. So they're judged, oh, yeah. you know, informally judged, and then incarcerated, and it's it's a kind of more kind of. Um, regulated more official version of that kind of uh unofficial stigmatization yeah uh-huh. and so it's kind of like you know whereas before you know like you can go to prison and you come out of prison and technically you're free because you're you're walking about but actually you're incarcerated in, in some sense because you can't get a job and you're judged but this is a yeah. similar thing isn't it is it but instead of like stigma what you're getting is a civil a civil sentence so it's almost like Mm -hmm. this civil sentencing is replacing the role of stigma so um so what are you working on next what's 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 in the pipeline
1: so i have a couple of projects that have grown out of this um one looking at um lgbtq um, encounters with and attitudes towards law enforcement so um you know something that as we are in pride season is very much in the headlines right now in the, in the States anyway, not sure what it's like over there. I I think you guys have had some of it too, right? With the skirmishes over, you know, police out of pride and things like that. Um, So I have that, um, that is developing. Um, And I'm also starting to look at um, queer people's um, pathways to prison. Uh, So, one thing that I learned uh, doing this research uh, is that queer people are two to three times more likely to be incarcerated than um, non-queer people, non-LGBTQ people. Um, But we don't really know much about why. Uh, You know, what's going on? Why? You know, what's going on in these um, uh, encounters with the police between between queer people and and the police, and what's going on in the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system that's causing this overrepresentation, um, and so so those are sort of a pair of linked projects um, that I that I'm sort of very in the very early stages of about to start like my first interview for the <laughs> queer pathways to incarceration. So uh, so we will see how those shape up, but. Uh, I'm really excited yeah they, they've sort of you know grown out of my interest about you know the legal regulation of sexuality and queer people encounters with the law uh so yeah i'm excited to to get those started
0: yeah that's that's quite interesting um a couple of like weeks ago i interviewed someone uh, whose books called aggressors in blue and it's quite interesting to see the police mm. crimes against uh, uh lgbtq people oh yeah Okay, so this is the part of the part of the podcast where you are allowed to shamelessly self-promote. Okay, shameless advertising. <laughs> so, who are you? What's the name of the book, and who publishes it?
1: Uh, I'm Stefan Vogler, and the name of the book is "Sorting Sexualities: Expertise in the Politics of Legal Classification." published by University of Chicago Press and it is available now okay. on Amazon or uchicagopress.com. Or okay. dot edu. Yeah. Right. Sorry.
0: <laughs> My name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. This is the New Book Network and this is the Sex Sex Work and Sexualities Channel.